Today's show is brought to you by Lightning Pod. If you have a podcast, you know that it's a lot of work. But Lightning Pod can help. We've been working with their founder, Eric Johnson, for more than a year now, and he's really helped us take the Smart Home Show to the next level. So if you're starting a new podcast or you want to make your existing podcast better, you should get in touch with Eric. Learn more at lightningpod.fm. On today's podcast, we talk rings on off, Juicero, August New Z-Way Walk, and much more with Homon's Richard Gunther. Stay tuned. Hey everyone, welcome to the Smart Home Show. I'm your host, Michael Wolf. Today's guest is Richard Gunther, host of the Home On Podcast, a great podcaster and a good friend who I enjoy talking about the news with, and that's actually the genesis of this podcast. We were, as so often is the case nowadays, having a conversation online over Twitter DM about some of the news was out there. The particular news we were talking about was the Juicero uh, viral story. There was a Bloomberg story written about Juicero, about how you can actually squeeze their juice packs and basically make superfluous their $400 juicing machine. And this became like this big meme. NPR wrote about it. And Richard and I had some thoughts about this. So we, we decided to get together on the podcast, talk about it. We talk about some other things as well, including August new Z-Wave walk. We talk about regen villages whose CEO I had on the last podcast. We also talk about the Zonoff ring story, which there's actually been a new development since we talked about this on this podcast. And because I'm a slow editor, uh, I didn't <laughs> get this out in time before new news broke. That's a danger one of the perils of being a slow podcast editor. I apologize, Richard, if you're listening to this. That new news, which you won't get in Richard and I's conversation, is that Zonoff, which many of them poised or most of them poised, were hired by Ring. Zonoff is being sued by ADT, and the CEO of Zonoff is getting sued by ADT. Mike Harris is getting sued because ADT feels that Zonoff has made off with some of its IoT technology that belongs to them. And so it's, it's a complete mess. I just thought I'd mention it because it is relevant to the story. I hope you enjoy this podcast. If you haven't already subscribed to the Smart Home Show, which would be weird because you're listening to this, please do. Find us in your regular podcast app. You can find us at technology.fm. You can find us at The Spoon. You can find us a lot of places, so go find us. And if you haven't written a review in iTunes, please do that. That's always helpful. If you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Michael Wolf. Please do let me know what you think of the podcast. I'd appreciate it. All right, folks, that's it for now. Let's talk to Richard. Richard Gunther. Welcome back to the podcast. I think the last time you were on the show, we were on each other's shows. We did the holiday special, which is becoming an annual thing. Welcome back. Thanks. I always love doing this with you. You know, you and I get to talk periodically, but to catch up on what's going on in the space is always a lot of fun. And just even in prep for this, we're like, wait a minute, we should be recording this. Yeah. Well, I, I'm a little bit bummed. We actually got a chance to connect at South by Southwest in Austin. I think last year we actually did happen to record one. It was just such a busy South by this year. We didn't have enough time. Yeah. The reason we're doing this, I think what the, the catalyst for getting together and doing this is, uh, a, you have a ton of guests that you're just kind of fully booked on. I haven't done a news podcast for a while, so I want to do one. But also, you and I were just having a conversation, a sidebar online uh, on Twitter DM about what had happened with Jairus Juicero over the past week. And so we wanted to talk about that. We said, why don't we just do a podcast? Talk about that. We talk about some other stuff. Well, let me give some background real quick. Uh, for the people that don't know, Juicero, which is this connected juice maker, there was an article about it for uh, by Bloomberg. And the interesting thing, the side the side note to this is uh, you didn't know this. I actually got interviewed for that article, but they didn't put me in it. Um, <laughs> but when I got interviewed with the author of it, she didn't really talk about what what she ultimately wrote about, which was the, the focus of the article was how you can actually squeeze the juice packs with your hands. And you didn't need necessarily the Juicero $400 juicer to do that. And that became the big focus of the article. And it became like a viral article. Everyone online and on Twitter said, oh boy, a company invests $120 million building this connected juicer and you could just squeeze it with your hands. And and so they kind of became this, uh, it became a meme. People were mocking them on the internet and we were, we were just kind of going, huh, maybe we should talk about this. And it was everywhere. I mean, it, this became not just a meme that, hey, look at this thing, ha, ha, ha. This got mean. They, they, it, was, it was like the uh, combined righteous indignation of every journalist out there. And this was everywhere. I, I heard this on Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. I mean, I, I couldn't believe the coverage that this got. And the gist of this is that, yeah, if you wanted to, you could take the bag that you get as part of your 
juice subscription and you could squeeze it really hard for about the same amount of time that the machine does and get juice out of it. Is it going to be the same? No. Is it going to take a bunch of your time to do that? Yes. And so there was just so much, I don't know, just heavily skewed opinion here. It was like a big pile on and it seemed so unfair to me. You and I know the people behind Juicero, so we probably have a little bit of a different skew, but I like to think that that also gives us a little bit of I don't know, perspective. So I, I, I waited till this week and I wrote an article about it. And basically what I tried to do is analyze why this happened. Why did the internet mm-hmm. jump on this? Why did everyone pass along this idea that this was uh, it's everything that's wrong with Silicon Valley, dumping a bunch of money in, into a, to solve a problem you don't need to solve? I could kind of see you know why they got at that. It's a juicer. It does cold press juice. It's expensive in a way. It's not necessarily something that you know, you're, sol- you're not necessarily solving world hunger. So I think that was like the the gist of what people were saying. I guess I could kind of understand that in in part, but at the same time, it was a four hundred dollar juicer. If you're drinking eight dollar glasses of juice and you want something to actually pour that juice for you, if you're subscribing to their product, you're spending about three thousand dollars a year on the juice. It doesn't seem a stretch to spend four hundred dollars on a juicer to make that job easier. I think it's just it didn't seem like as big a deal as everyone is making it out to be. Secondly, if you're a uh, if you're working as a barista or if you're working in a restaurant, you're not gonna take time to hand squeeze a glass of juice from one of their juice packs <laughs> while you're making a coffee or getting that dish out to the table. This actually does make a lot of sense in a professional market. None of that was explained in the in the Bloomberg article. I thought it was a weird part piece of journalism. They weren't very balanced. I think they thought they thought they had a scoop and they just ran with it. Right. No, I feel the same way. And the result was kind of this mass pile on that we had. You mentioned that, uh, this was thought of as kind of an example of the Valley's excesses, excesses, not necessarily successes, but at the same time, they are also kind of accusing the company of being tone deaf. And that was a reaction to their CEO going on medium and saying, all right, here is what we're really trying to do. And by the way, if you're not happy with your product, we'll buy it back from you for whatever you paid for it, whether you bought it initially at full price when it started at $700 or if you paid for it at $400. They're going to reimburse you if you're unhappy. And the pile on continued. And it was just, it was just, in my opinion, uh, mob mentality in the journalism space. And that was very frustrating to me because I know of all of the stuff that you were just talking about. And, and, At the same time, I'm thinking, how many of these writers, before they sat down to write, just got their coffee from a Keurig machine or have invested in other conveniences in the home that at one point in time might have been considered excessive? You know, how many of them, like me, send their pants out to get pressed? Because I don't want to stand there with an app with a an iron for five to 10 minutes to press my own pants after they come out of the washer that could do a perfectly good job for a whole lot cheaper. It's one of the downsides of like, there's so many tech blogs now and not a lot of original journalism being done and not a lot of kind of deep insightful analysis. People basically copy and paste ideas. And I think this was one of those copy and pasted viral ideas. Oh yeah, this is ridiculous. I'm not really going to think about it, but I want to tell everyone how ridiculous this is. One thing that they didn't cover in the article, which I thought was disappointing, is they talked about how they spent $120 million, and they basically said, okay, all you got was a connected juicer. Well, Juicero built an end-to-end delivery system where they basically built a factory. The founder went out and tried to find someone to actually package these curry – essentially what are curry pods for fresh juice. And by the way, they're not bags of juice. They're actually raw vegetables and fruit in these bags that you then make into juice. Uh, right. In the article, there's a quote basically made it sound like it was just a bag of juice. Like you're just squeezing the juice out of it. To build that <laughs> entire thing, that took a lot of money. Now, I have questions about the, like how they scale to different geographies. That's one of the things I've always wondered about Juicero. That's a, I can see why that is very capital intensive. That's a thing you think they would have mentioned. And the other thing is that, oh, by the way, you know what? We have no reason to believe that they're doing badly. But we're just going to write this up as if it's terrible. We could go on and on and on about this, but uh, let's talk about our next story because I think this is another interesting story. What did you think of the Amazon fashion net cam? It was essentially a, 
an Alexa powered inside the home camera and the, the skew on it they put was basically a fashion camera. And, uh, I don't know if you watched the video. <laughs> like, I thought this was actually kind of weird. They, they showed yeah. a bunch, uh, they basically just showed a woman after woman in their home, in their room standing in front of the camera. They didn't, I don't think they showed one guy, which I thought was weird. I, I get that you're going after a demographic, but do you not, are you basically saying only women care about the way they dress? I thought it was a weird video. Uh, it was just, it's, it's kind of a weird product in general, but what do you think of it? Uh, so yes, I think it's a weird product. It's an interesting product. It's a smart play on Amazon's side because they're trying to get more and more into fashion. And certainly they have a way of selling you the products that are going to work for you. If that's something that you want to do, that's not going to be your typical guy. I mean, I, I don't mean to make sexist comments or anything, but I think you're going to find that they're going to have more people interested in fashion in the female demographic than they will be in the male demographic. So that's just where they're going to focus their energy. You didn't have a problem with them them framing that as primarily a product for women. I I didn't. And I think it helps them potentially tap into a market of people who might not otherwise have been interested in it. If someone's interested in fashion, but not interested in technology, for example, because the people who are buying the Echo right now, and unlike you, I am not going to call it by her name. These people are are typically tech savvy. They are they are into technology. This is a technical device that you buy it because of its technical capabilities. And so, what they're trying to do, I think, is bring to that platform some actual use cases that your average person is going to relate to. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Now. Do I want to put a camera in my dressing area? <laughs> if you have a bleeping machine, you should probably use it here. But heck no. No, absolutely not. I am never, ever, ever going to do that. I just think that is ripe for hacking. I think it's creepy as anything. And I, I, it's it's not something I feel comfortable with. I don't even have Nest cameras in my home because I don't like the idea of having cameras inside my home. I have cameras on my perimeter outside the house, but not inside. I do have cameras in the home and I call it my homework camera. Cause I basically just use it to watch and see if my kids are doing homework when I'm not, <laughs> not home. Yeah. I agree with you that it, there is a bit of a creep factor. I think that's generally been the problem for the, the indoor cameras. I, so I do think it's an interesting and somewhat brave move for Amazon to say, Hey, this is goes in your bedroom where you're probably going to be without clothing a lot of time. And uh, we're going to make it, exclusively for that. So I think it's interesting. I do like the idea that they're trying to differentiate. I mean, we're seeing pet cams now. We're seeing uh, we're seeing granny cams yep. now, um, baby cams. This is actually probably the first that I've seen that this is a fashion camera. So bravo to Amazon for actually trying to differentiate. Because I think as you get to market more crowded, you probably have to do that. So, but yeah, interesting choice. Not surprising it is Amazon that did something kind of crazy like this because that's what Amazon does. <laughs> This next story you told me about, I missed it, and I've just been kind of busy, I guess, but I think this is interesting. iDevices got acquired by components and lighting giant Hubble. Uh, Right. What do you think about this? This was a surprise to me, but if I think about it, I think it makes a lot of sense. If you're not familiar with the name Hubble, Hubble is an enormous international conglomerate of companies that are focused on industrial and residential stuff. And a lot of their labels and space are around lighting. It's not space telescopes, no. <laughs> I know. <laughs> and Hubble is a name that I know from going to conferences where there are often lighting vendors there. So I knew who they were immediately. And when I thought about it, I'm like, well, you know, they're not really big into the residential space except for custom right now. This would give them an in to direct to consumer products if that's something that they want. And iDevices is saying that they are going to continue to run and support the products that they are already releasing and have out there and that they continue to that they will continue to improve on them. So it sounds to me like this is 
really just kind of bringing them in this label into their fold and then maybe seeing what synergies they have in common. Because one of the things that iDevices does, and a lot of people don't know this, they make a lot of their money actually through custom install stuff, through larger integration um opportunities like maybe with builders and stuff like that and that is certainly a space where uh hubble is well known yeah i thought about it mainly from the iDevices perspective and also just the broader kind of industry consolidation perspective i think we've started to see and our next story we'll talk about as well kind of points to this we're seeing a little bit more consolidation uh from some of the early players in the smart home space. This is, I think, a sign of that. I do think it's interesting when you look at iDevices, this, the story of this company, or the history of this company. I'm familiar with them from, you know, four years ago. They were like this company that made the iGrill. Uh, these, can, these, they were really the first ones that were mm-hmm. doing these kind of Bluetooth therm, uh, therm, meat thermometers. They were actually yep. the most successful one for a while. I think I, the numbers I got early on is they did a couple hundred thousand of these things. Um, yeah. And then, Everything changed when HomeKit started to come out. They bet the company on that. I remember yeah. very they very specifically made a splash in this industry by saying they did something like they've invested it was crazy or ten million dollars worth of man hours. That that was it in the development right. of the HomeKit business. And we are all right. trying to do the math. It's like what do they mean by that? It was it was a weird kind of a announcement. They basically put to bed that iGrow business. Well, they sold that. They sold it off. And and but I will tell you, I also have an iDevices. Bluetooth shower speaker. And I think they still sell them. Do they? <laughs> so they, they launched this business where they were actually doing home kit product building for other companies. I think that they saw that was really going to be their future. And I'm, I'm curious. I don't know if that business did as well. I, I think what happened is the home kit business didn't grow as fast as they expected because home kit didn't grow as fast as everyone expected. And I just wonder if this was a acquisition uh, that was by necessity rather than, uh, oh, this was just a great a strategic fit. Hmm. I don't interesting. know. Interesting. Yeah. I don't, I'm not implying. I'm just saying I don't know enough. Um, I do think it's interesting at, at CES this year, they came out with a, an Android um, announcement. So they, they started to also do Android. It was a fairly quiet CES for them. It was it was also just immediately before they launched their um, kind of in-wall devices, too. Yeah. They yeah. sneaked those last year, and now they're available for order. These in-wall light switches and in wall uh, outlets that are also HomeKit compatible. Great, great industrial design. And this really kind of put them in a place that other HomeKit product manufacturers weren't really playing, at least not well yet. And then they also announced the Bluetooth integration with a wireless switch. So they they have all of this stuff that they've been pushing. And it's kind of, it's all like on the eve of that stuff being available. And, oh, yeah, by the way, now we're a part of Hubble. That's that's what's kind of with the timing is what seems kind of weird. But it does seem like you said a great fit with Hubble. So it might just have been like Hubble looked at this company. These are like, they have a lot of product on the, kind of on the precipice of coming out. And so it does make sense that a company like Hubble say, this is a good fit for us as we try to maybe try to IOT ourselves ourselves, whatever, you know, and get ready for the future. This <laughs> this is a good platform for us to buy. Speaking of platforms, uh, we saw Ring, uh, and you talked about this a while ago. This is actually not super new news, but I just wanted to revisit with you and talk about this a bit because we're both familiar with, with Zonoff. We saw that Ring mm-hmm. had actually essentially aqua hired Zonoff. I think Stacy broke the story about a month ago, Stacy Higginbotham. Uh, and I think, I don't know how many employees, a lot of employees went from Zonoff as a standalone company and went over to work for Ring. This was actually a fairly big announcement for the industry. Mm-hmm. What were your thoughts on this? Yeah, so as I understand it, they basically gave an offer to anybody at Zonoff who wanted a job at Ring. They didn't acquire Zonoff. Zonoff yeah, yeah. It, was, it was kind of an aqua hire of the employees, but you're right. They didn't buy all the IP. They basically offered the employees jobs. Right, exactly. And from what I understand, nearly everybody went over. And this is so smart because this is such a sharp group of people. And Zonoff's strength has really been in integration. And this is where Ring states that they really intend to take advantage of this team's skills is further their integration with other products. And, you you know, I don't know how much you've talked with Jamie Simonoff from Ring about this, but he's very coy about integration. 
he doesn't really, he talks as if he doesn't care about integration yet. He knows full well that people, particularly those most interested in this technology do care about it, but your average garden variety consumer that just wants a doorbell with a camera or once the new floodlight that they just came out with with a camera isn't necessarily going to worry about that. And this way, he has a team that can dedicate themselves to that and it doesn't necessarily have to impact the rest of his team and priorities. I think this is very smart. I'm glad to see a home for the the very intelligent and and wonderful people at Zonoff. I <laughs> I wonder what happens to Zonoff, right? Like I, I, we still have these platforms out there built kind of on their IP, zombie platforms in a sense. And there's probably yeah. going to be more and more of them. I do think uh, Zonoff was a kind of a, a victim of some bad luck. I mean, I think a great early win was the Staples win. It was always a little bit of an awkward type of product line because Staples didn't seem like the right retailer for for a smart home line. And, well, then, and then they just ignored it. For yeah, yeah. years. They just did nothing with they, it. They did. And then also they just had bad luck, I think, around. Well, the LG thing. The LG thing. They are also going to work uh, to a bit with a bit with ADT. And then ADT got acquired mm-hmm. um, in a sense. And so that was kind of a weird thing. And, and it was just there were some lawsuits involved. So they just kind of were, I think, victims of bad luck with the, the partners they had. And that really kind of hurt them getting out into the market and getting revenue. And eventually they just ran out of money. Yeah, it's it's an unfortunate story with a happy ending. Yeah, they're all good people. Uh, the folks is on off. So it's a good, I think, marriage. And it's good to see that people will persist and keep doing stuff in the, in the smart home world. Here's yep. an, The next one was an interesting story. Uh, Namiku, I don't know if, if you have a Namiku, basically an immersion circulator, makers of uh, sous vide immersion circulators, much like a Nova uh-huh. or, or Sansair. Um, there was news this week that they came out with their next generation product and that they were being uh, getting an investment from Samsung Ventures. And what was interesting about this this announcement was that, uh, A, I think it's interesting that uh, they're going to be coming out with a new immersion circulator and a subscription or essentially a meal delivery kit, which is interesting in and of itself. But mm-hmm. Samsung's invested in them, and there's going to be an integration with SmartThings as well as this, this, the family have refrigerator. So I thought that was all pretty interesting news. Because whenever Samsung does something, I think it's it's interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I had not even heard of NamiQ until I attended your panel at South by Southwest, where you had the founder of that company Lisa on your panel. Petterman. And, yep. Oh, she is, she is like my panel speaker hero. She was <laughs> such a riot. I had such an enjoyable time listening to her speak. And soaking up her enthusiasm, this kind of investment for them is really big because it gives them exposure that they otherwise just would not get with this type of product. And the fact that Samsung, who has made such inroads in getting their name into the kitchen, is now taking a a big step and investment in sous vide cooking, I think can only be good for the industry. You know, Lisa had a quote. She had a quote. This is Samsung's attempt to uh, dominate the smart kitchen. I thought, you know, that that was her saying this. This wasn't Samsung saying this. You're never going to get a quote from a company like Samsung like that. But I thought that was interesting. What made me think about and wonder about is there was, you know, she announced this food delivery service. Basically, they're creating a, a meal delivery service of frozen food that you scan with your Namiku sous vide machine. And you have meals in 30 minutes or less. As you know, you I think you have an Innova, you do sous vide. It could take two hours sometimes to cook a meal, like a steak. You right. know, you'll, you'll just throw in a bag. It takes a couple hours. It's not a fast process. It's kind of a slow cook. What they're trying to do with this new approach is make sous vide a faster, more convenient cook, and then and and as a result, make it appeal to a wider audience. I think that's interesting. Yeah. It's very smart. And the way that they're doing that is that you're using your sous vide cooker to reheat. You're not actually cooking in your sous vide cooker with these meal packets that they have. It's kind of like using a microwave to cook something, except the output is going to be so much better. It's going to be tastier. But I started to wonder, is this something that Samsung is interested in down the road? Will Samsung at some point become a blue apron in a sense for, for sous vide? I don't know. But you have to wonder if maybe this 
uh, is something that like appliance makers see as maybe a new revenue stream. I, I do think that food delivery is like a could be potentially low margin. It could be expensive. So I don't know if they're going to go down that route. But it's it's interesting to me that in a sense, this might be a direction that like a Samsung could go. Yeah, potentially, potentially. I don't know. I I, I haven't. You know, my my vote on Samsung's ability to get the smart kitchen aligned is still out because they keep on trying to solve this problem with the smart fridge. And I'm convinced that the way they're doing it is not the way that that the smart fridge needs to go. I, I think someday we'll see the smart fridge we want. It's not out there yet. And Samsung continues to try to deliver it with um, – a couple cameras and a big, huge Android screen on the front of your uh, your refrigerator, and I just don't think that that is the solution. But for them to look at products like this and start thinking a little bit more innovatively, I think that's very, very smart. The thing that I got a real kick out of is that this announcement came pretty much at the same time. In fact, I might very well have been listening. <laughs> to Lisa on your show while I was selecting my first week's food subscription for my Tavala oven that's supposed to be here next week. Your Tavala's on the way. How about wow. that? How, how excited? Are you, are you going to write a review <laughs> of that? I, I, I can't wait to hear your thoughts about it. Yeah, I, I absolutely plan to. So I'm actually really intrigued by the Tavala. We're not, we don't have to go down that path, but uh, if the folks at Tavala get this thing off the ground, if they ship a connected oven with some steam elements, et cetera, and do a subscription meal kit delivery service, that is an impressive lift for a startup. Like that's something that I think yeah. would bring big, some big companies to its knees. So I, <laughs> I'm serious. Like, so I'm pretty impressed if this thing actually ships. There's, you know, having met, uh, David, the, the CEO of Taval, I, I was impressed mm -hmm. by him. It didn't seem like this was a fly by night type of company. Um, but you had to have a little bit of a worry at some point, like, will they ever ship this thing? So uh, you were probably, I mean, you, you took a leap of faith by backing this, I would say. I did. And I'm not a big fan of Kickstarter, but I am a big fan of kitchen technologies that make cooking easier because I don't like to do it. <laughs> so I can't wait to hear how it goes. The next story is, this isn't uh, super new, but this happened uh, within the last month or so. August launched a Z-Wave walk. The well-known smartwatch company, mostly known for basically Bluetooth locks, high-profile, Eve Bahar, uh, Nate Williams has been on my show a lot, great guy. Uh, August is certainly a pretty high-profile smartwatch company. They've gone into video doorbells. They haven't done a Z-Wave walk before, which I think basically marks a new direction for them. I think it's a smart direction because I actually think um, if you, when you're talking about Z-Wave, you're generally talking about managed home security services and managed mm -hmm. smart home. I think that's potentially a big market that they were, were not being – not participating in. So I think it's a good move for August. Yeah, I think it is too. This really aligns them better with companies like, for example, Vivint and other providers that are currently offering Z-Wave based systems. And unless you're playing in that radio space, you're going to be looked over. And so I think this is very smart for them, kind of gives them the whole gamut, kind of like, Quickset also has varying versions based on what type of radio you need to operate your lock. I wonder, Mike, do we need to get to the place where you just buy a lock and pay a little bit of extra money for it and it has everything it needs to work on either HomeKit or Bluetooth or Z-Wave or maybe one or two other things in there and you don't have to worry about which one you're buying into, because that's the thing that worries me about this is this is them kind of embracing the fragmentation. I don't think there's that from that much fragmentation. I mean, I think locks are basically low cost products. So to start uh, embedding radios into every lock, I think is making things unnecessarily expensive. And there's really only two choices right now. There's basically there's two and a half. I mean, there's Bluetooth locks and there's Z-Wave locks. Um, and there are some Wi-Fi locks out there. Um, there are some folks doing Wi-Fi uh, wi locks, and, and that'll probably grow over time. But uh, I don't necessarily think it's that big of a problem, quite honestly. Okay. You know, it's funny because this is one of the things that keeps me from getting a lock on my house, is I, I have a hard time deciding, do I want to go the Z-Wave path, 
even though I really don't have any other Z-Way stuff? Or do I want to go with something that's HomeKit compatible or just a plain old Bluetooth that's not HomeKit compatible? And I mean, I know a lot about this stuff. And <laughs> for confused. me, that's a stumbling block. I, I have a hard time with all of those options. And I have to wonder, is it also confusing for consumers? I'm not saying it's bad that they're doing this. I just, I really do wish that companies would come out with locks that say, oh, and now it supports this too, instead of having a separate SKU for each radio. Yeah, I, I can see why th- most people would get confused. Getting back to uh, August, I do think what they should do is create a lock with an embedded keypad. I think that they're, I'm not a big fan necessarily of their aftermarket keypad and not nothing against them. I right. think that it was smart that they did it, but I really like embedded keypads on locks. I think they look more secure. They look more, just more robust. And I, I'm a big believer, as I've talked about before with smartwatches, these keypads are great because you don't have to give anyone an app. They don't, if you have someone coming, you can just give them a number and they could get in your home, which is really, really convenient. So I think that's what I would want August to do maybe next. If, not that they're listening to me. <laughs> well, if they do that, that's a completely different product line, right? Because right now what they have is a retrofit product that you put over your existing mechanism. If they were to put a keypad built into this thing, that really means that they're a full replacement system for your locking mechanism. Which is true. Which is true. Good point. But why not go that route? I, I mean, they're going into the service provider market in a sense. They're going into managed smart with Z-Wave. I think as you grow over time, if you're August, you just have more, you're going to have a few more SKUs. I think a full replacement lock isn't necessarily a bad idea, but you're right. That is maybe, uh, that is a, that is a big step for them. This next story I wanted you to talk about, because I, I figured I'm having Richard Gunther on the podcast. I cannot have Richard <laughs> Gunther on the podcast with when there's a story about lighting. Not only that, it's a story about Ikea and lighting. It's like the perfect storm for Richard Gunther to, to talk about something on my podcast. Ikea Everything has launched. came together. Yes. This is your peanut butter and chocolate product. <laughs> yeah, you know, we spoke, I don't know how long ago. It's been ago a couple years Maybe now, I think. Well over a year, yeah, where uh, we were positing that retail's a mess. Nobody can really sell the connected products well. And who could do it well? Who is the infrastructure and the uh, retail mindset to be able to tell a story around smart home products. Ikea does. That's who does. And guess what? They're doing it now. I love this. So they came out with a line of smart lighting products. These are Zigbee-based connected lights. They have them in a variety of different kits. They also have a remote, a couple different remotes, actually. And they... Uh, they are available in stores now in many locations. I went to my local Ikea and I was able to buy a lot of the products and I've been playing with them a little bit and trying them out. The The product line is called Troid Free and it, you know, it, they look like typical connected bulbs. They're LED bulbs. What's interesting about them is that one of the bulbs has three different white color variations. So you can have a warm white or a, a whiter, more bright white, and then a much cooler white that you might want to use for morning time or for um, work spaces. And you control the color with one of the remote controls that it comes with. So that's pretty cool. And then the other thing that they've come out with is this little disc. They call it a wheel device. And the wheel device is designed so that just just imagine like a quarter-inch thick disc that is maybe an inch and a half in diameter, almost like they just cut a slice off of a thick dowel. And this thing, just by turning it, either on a flat surface or up in the air, actually dims or brightens the bulbs that you connect it to. Now, I would love to say that this is as amazing as the (laughs) ads make it look, but it's a little bit less smooth than that. And it turns out one of uh, the writers on uh, our site uh, did a little experiment and posted some videos to YouTube where he found that if he paired that wheel to hue bulbs, that it actually controlled them better than Ikea's own bulbs. So Ikea might have a little bit of learning and tweaking to still do, but I love seeing them entering this space. I do too. I'm excited about the possibilities of what IKEA can do if they really decide to reinvent 
furniture and the home and make them smarter. This is probably just the first of, 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 of I think, what will ultimately be many. Um, I mean, they're, they're just a unique beast. There's nothing like Ikea that has their own store, um, has this uh, amazing, like, I mean, who hasn't had Ikea furniture? I mean, I think most people, at least in the U.S., uh, if, if you've, like, had a normal kind of, you know what I mean? If you've grown up in the U.S., you probably bought an Ikea furniture. Um, so yep. they're, they're pretty unique. And in an era where retailers are really suffering, I think they're one that probably isn't. So I, I really am interested to see where they go. They've done some really cool future forward concepts. They, they did, uh, like the kitchen of the future video about a year ago where they actually had this, they, they, they worked mm-hmm. with IDEO and they basically thought, how can we reinvent the kitchen? And one of the things that they did is they, had, they made the kitchen table basically like this. They call it like a living kitchen table. I forget what they call it. The kitchen table became a, a surface, like, and it had an interface on it. And so uh, there was cameras above on the where the lighting would be. And so they watch where your fingers could be kind of like a projection interface, and you could move things around. I just think IKEA has probably a lot of cool ideas uh, on the drawing board, and so I'm, I'm excited to see where they go with stuff. Absolutely, and just from a retail perspective, they are so much better at helping people understand the utility and benefit and value in products as compared to somebody that just say has a bunch of bulb boxes (laughs) on a big orange wall with no real way of comparing them or understanding how they're different. And we talk a lot about this idea of experiential retail. It's kind of a buzzword, but like they were the original experiential retail. Like when you walk, yeah, you do the big mile gap. I don't know what is it a mile, whatever you do with a typical <laughs> IKEA. Like you're basically doing a big lap, and you go through a bunch of experiences. You go through the bedroom, and you go through. Oh, now I'm in the. I'm going through a bunch of through a bunch of dinner tiny dining tables, and they yeah. are the original experiential retailer. So they're kind of just set up, uh, I think, to really show this stuff off. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So you. uh we have another a, a sous vide store. You actually uh, are an over user. I'm an over user as well. And I a, a lot of people know, uh, I think it was maybe about a month ago, that they, they integrated with Google Home. They also have integrated with uh, the name Shall We Not We Shall Not Speak, uh, that you, because <laughs> we may set off a, a certain virtual assistant. And, and when they did this upgrade, um, they, they required when you upgraded the, the app to create a user account. And this created a little bit of a backlash. Um, what I liked about what happened afterwards, and you could talk about this because I think you, you thought about this a little bit as well, is, uh, they owned up to it and they said, well, we're yep. actually going to correct this. Um, so you don't have to create a user account. They re- immediately recognized this when there's some of their community members said, Hey, what are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, as you mentioned, you know, they're, they've embraced Google home and they've embraced the echo platform. And to do that, you have to have some way of tying to a cloud account. Now, previously, their products really didn't have any cloud capabilities and weren't connected to the cloud in any way, except perhaps that through the app, you had access to their vast library of resources, including recipes and uh, just general cooking information and all of that. But to connect to these devices, you had to have an account. So they rolled out an update to their apps recently that consolidated their apps and put them in a and uh, set up a new account registration process, but they didn't communicate it to people ahead of time. They didn't provide cues in the app about what was different and why, and people just blew up. They were really frustrated. And I can tell you from my own experience, when I went to use this for the first time, even after I knew about this, I was really confused. I didn't know what it was that I needed to do. First of all, it, you know, it's asking me for a password. I didn't, did I, did I put a username and password in before? I don't know. I don't remember. I've had this app for like months and months. I have no, I might have. So I kept on trying stuff and it wasn't working. And so this was a, unfortunately a sloppy new account rollout for a company that hasn't really done cloud services before for customers. And they learned from it. Their their customers were unhappy and they ended up coming out with a post on their blog saying, all right, we heard you and we screwed up. So we're going to change how this works. If you have the Wi-Fi device, then 
you're going to need this account. So we're, we're going to have the ability for you to set up an account. But if you have a Bluetooth device, there's no reason why you would ever need to set up an account because you're not going to be able to control that with these home assistants. So there's no need for you to create an account in that case. And they'll provide a little bit more information next time too, I think, helping people through the process. But all of this was to support these new Google Home and Echo Skills that are now out. And in fact, the the Echo Skill had been talked about long ago. It is now actually available. You can download it and uh, link your account. So it's exciting stuff. It's great stuff. I'm glad to see it. It's unfortunate that they tripped getting it out. Yeah, and I think that these are the types of things that is going to happen for companies that are rolling out completely new and different capabilities. Um, and this is, like you said, it's really they really hadn't really delved too deeply into cloud services. This last story, uh, at least the last uh, non-user uh, reader submitted story, listener submitted story, uh, I just want to talk about because I actually did. This was on the last podcast. Um, I just wanted to get your opinion of it. Uh, I had a chance to talk with James Earl. He's the CEO of Regen Villages. I met James down at Google. He came and spoke to the Google Food Lab. And uh, I think it's an ambitious idea. It's certainly something that uh, is for like kind of the people who ultimately at least now have a lot of money. But the idea of creating a very future forward home that in 50 years, um, you know, 100 years, I think maybe much more common where you're basically a fully independent of the grid. These are neighborhoods that where the homes talk to each other, where they can basically create their own food, their own electricity, their own water. I think this is the direction that ultimately we're going to see neighborhoods go as we get more and more towards smart neighborhoods, smart cities. What are your thoughts on these types of ideas? Do you think maybe 50 years we're going to see basically all new neighborhoods that are built similar to this? Or do you think this is something that we'll never see a mass market of? Yeah, I have a hard time judging how people will take to this. I mean, my first reaction was that this seemed kind of hippie to me and maybe just <laughs> yeah. uh, a, a step or two away from homesteading. And I'm not saying that that's a bad thing, but it's certainly not for the masses. So the the big takeaway that I had from your discussion with him was that it's all great if you want to live your life in a way that is um, – and I he, he tried to – Stay away from the term sustainable, but I'm going to use that because it's what I'm familiar with, but in a way that's more sustainable and and more off the grid. That's great. But the real benefit is when you do that as a community, and it's not just a multiplying effect. There are significantly more things that you can do together as a community and more benefits that you have as a community than you could do on your own. And I think that was – the real interesting takeaway from that discussion for me, and it makes a lot of sense. So whether you're looking at doing something that totally gets your community off the grid or just working with your community to make your homes and community smarter and more sustainable as a collective, I think that's really smart. Yeah, I'm excited about uh, the idea of it. I do think, you know, as we look over the next 50 years, it's going to be harder and harder um, to get cheap energy. It's going to be harder and harder to get uh, low-cost food. And there's going to be a real dwindle. There's going to be less jobs. I tend to think that automation is going to take away some of the jobs. That's just my opinion. People may disagree with that. If that's the case, you know, what, what's happened over the past 100 years is we've seen people come together in urban centers because that's where the jobs were. We've seen factories built. You know, this has been over the past mm-hmm. 200 years, the Industrial Revolution. What, what he's basically thinking about is, okay, as we move to a post-industrial revolution age, there might be a, a – you may see a decentralization. You don't necessarily have to be in cities. You don't have to have everyone in big, giant buildings. I like this idea of maybe this is a technology platform to do that. So if you can maybe envision people don't have to move to Boston or they don't have to move to Detroit for their jobs anymore, maybe they can work in communities. People can be a little bit more self-sufficient around food. Uh, maybe more more people will be farmers. I mean, it does sound hippie-ish, <laughs> but if you have someone in like your your hundred person community actually kind of creating your food, that's a couple jobs. And quite honestly, a lot of our GDP goes to food, um, but most of the food we get is actually centrally produced. So it's an interesting concept. It's very future forward. If people haven't you haven't checked it out, listen to the podcast. Go to Regen Villages to see the idea. But I think there's some big ideas here. I think it's really cool. I think the the thing that concerns me about how how this works and how this grows is that you need a lot of money to get this off the ground 
And he talked about Agreed. how this could be funded, right? He didn't really have the DIY component of this. Like the idea of like, I asked him, okay, I, and I made the equation to smart home. I said, okay, in the smart home world, you have like the low, or you have like the DIY self-installable smart home equipment. There's no equivalent of that, what you're talking about. Can we get there? And he didn't really have that answer yet, but I think he's trying to create the, the first version. Uh, it'll probably be up to someone else to think about how to make this where you can retrofit our homes to do that. Yeah. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how that comes to be. And the other thing I guess I would worry about is, <laughs> and this is so me and my dystopian view of the future, <laughs> but I love this idea of the communities coming together and doing this thing. But if you need big money to make this happen and it's, it's initially taking off through communities that are, that are like built this way before people even move into them. At some point in time, does this just become like the Westfield mall of communities <laughs> and you end up with this just big corporate branded small, small town community thing? I, I kind of, I, I worry as I see how companies invest in what have typically and traditionally been small local organizations like hospitals and, and you know, you name it, um, is that going to happen here? And it kind of defeats the purpose. I do think to get to the point where we have like the stuff you buy at retail for average people like us to install, you do need essentially the Elon Musk of every industry. I mean, I think to where we can all get to the point where we have like solar panel uh, roof tiles, you need to have Elon Musk doing that and having being very expensive for a decade. And then it becomes affordable for everyone. So I don't, I, I agree with you. Like this is like a, a high price corporate kind of managed approach, but this guy needs to do it first to where like 25 years from now, the technology is, is cost affordable for everyone. Yeah, absolutely. By the way, I want those roof tiles. Yeah, so do I. I'm on the list. <laughs> At least I put my name down. I don't know if I can afford them. <laughs> hey, we have a couple user or listener recommended stories. Did you read the story on Gizmodo? Basically this idea of this guy's put out this essentially uh, he, what he calls chemotherapy, uh, chemotherapy for insecure IOT devices. I think this is, <laughs> <laughs> the, what do you think of this bricker bot? Did you look at the story? <sighs> I, I will tell you that I, I much prefer solutions like what we're seeing out of the folks behind the almond router and some other companies where they're, they're building, they're, they're basically building checks in for weaknesses into their products in a constructive way that consumers can relate to. Um, <laughs> Rather I, than I chemotherapy, think, internet chemotherapy. <laughs> <laughs> I think this is an interesting, but perhaps radical and not widely adoptable thing. Yeah, I agree. It's uh, there's always going to be guys out there who are going to try and prove, as part of the white hat community, that this is insecure, and we need those people out there. But I don't know if it's we want all these devices bricking. I mean, it's going to get dangerous at some point. The second story, uh, it wasn't really a story. It's just someone posed a, a, essentially a, a philosophical question. <laughs> uh, Scott Culler on Twitter, I hope I got his name right. He says, "Is digital privacy a right or a privilege?" And he didn't, he, it was an article. He just, we asked for topics and this is what he proposed. That's maybe too big a question for this podcast or do you have an answer for that? It's an interesting question to look at. The more that you give information to create accounts on cloud services and that you provide in terms of preferences and interests to customize a product, the more you're kind of giving your privacy away. In fact, that was one of the concerns that Innova customers had is why do I have to give you this information to use your product that I bought off the shelf? That doesn't make any sense to me. And so I think you're going to end up with people who are in both camps. And I'm in the camp where I recognize that I am going to have to forfeit some of my privacy to be able to use some of the things that I'm interested in and just assume that of what I can control, some of that information is going to be sold. Now, there's stuff that I can't control and that I don't know about, and I'm concerned about that. It's why I don't, for example, have Nest cameras in my home because I don't necessarily trust that they or someone that buys the company or someone that hacks the company couldn't be used in a nefarious way to violate my privacy. So I think this is a very personal thing. And whether it is a right or a privilege, 
I think probably is a better discussion for lawmakers at some point in time that we will likely end up getting into. Like this has been touched on with some legislation, but I think at some point we're going to probably have some very serious case about what is believed to be an abuse of privacy rights that will end up becoming precedent that that could affect a lot of companies going forward. I agree with you. I think like this is going to increasingly become politicized. There'll be like someone who drafts the, you know, digital internet, maybe the internet of things or the the internet bill of privacy bill of rights or someone. Maybe (laughs) maybe someone's already drafted that, but I think it's going to become increasingly increasing fodder for, uh, for politicians as more stories come up. Um, it's interesting because we as consumers, we get outraged. Um, when there is a story about a violation of our privacy, but at the same time, most of us, my, myself included, we're just so willing to sign up for accounts and not read all the fine print and are willing to put things like cameras in our homes or, or devices that are monitoring what we're doing. I mean, who knew that Uber, uh, you, when you deleted Uber, it wasn't really being deleted and they're tracking what we're doing. We, most of us didn't know that. That's, right. that, that's pretty outrageous. I think that's pretty, uh, extreme example of a company going to extremes and they deserve all the, <laughs> all the outrage that they're getting about that. But like, there's probably more of those stories we don't know about. Yes. They deserved the pile on. Let's end this show yeah. <laughs> <laughs> with a company that deserved the hatred. They are a horrible company. <laughs> and yet I still have them on my phone because I could not use Lyft in Houston where I just was. So here I am complaining about a horrible company and I'm still using their services. Well, I will say though, the drivers are really nice. So the people are nice. I don't mind giving money to these guys making a living. Uh, but right. Uber is a pretty horrible company. That's a good way to end the show, right? Absolutely. Hey, Richard, this has been great. Glad you could join us. Where can people find you? Yeah, thanks for having me on, Mike. I always enjoy talking with you about this kind of stuff, whether it's officially for the show or whether we're just kind of uh, catching up. But this has been great. I have the show called Home On, and that's the Digital Media Zone, the digitalmediazone.com. And we often have guests on where we talk about these very topics and dive into our guest companies. If, for example, they're a founder or a CEO of the company. And in my most recent episode, uh, kind of coincidentally enough, I had one of the co-founders from Automatic before the news of their recent acquisition. So go back and listen to that if you're interested. And coming up just in a couple of days, my next episode features my favorite tech journalist, Molly Wood. Check it out, everyone. Richard is a great podcaster. Uh, give them URL. Yep, you can find that at thedigitalmediazone.com. Thanks, Richard. Thank you. Well, that's it. I want to thank Richard Gunther for taking time out from his busy schedule to record a podcast with me. I want to thank you all for listening. Please subscribe. If you haven't checked out The Spoon, go to thespoon.tech. Check that out. And when you wander over to Twitter, say hi. I'm at Michael Wolf. All right, folks, that's it for now. We'll talk to you soon. <laughs>